Well, as we go through today, we're going to be talking about the danger of Christless philosophy. We are in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, but I do want to start with kind of a, a, a big picture summary uh, of where we've been and kind of the, the major things. So as we go, we've talked about this before, but what is the theme of Colossians? Hopefully that's not a trick question for those that have been here. Maybe we haven't done a good enough job of saying it. Sufficiency of Christ. Yes, it, the, the, the theme would be the all-sufficiency of Christ. That is that in Christ we have everything we need. Uh, and the reality is that the entire book is written based on that premise. And that's what we're coming to today is one of those areas where sometimes people want to uh, find their sufficiency elsewhere, outside of Christ, apart from Christ, uh, in some cases in addition to Christ. But what Paul is teaching the Colossian church and what Paul is teaching us as we study through is that all sufficiency is in Christ. And so that, that's a key important thing for us to know. And as we go through kind of a review of the book so far, we're, you know, again, partway through chapter two, um, the book really starts with Paul thanking, giving thanks to Christ for the Colossians' salvation. You know, if you read through Colossians 1, he's not saying, good job, Colossians, because you believed the truth. He's saying, praise the Lord, praise Christ for his sufficiency and his goodness to have drawn you into salvation. And so the focus, even as he's talking about the salvation and the maturity of the Colossians, is not way to go Colossians, it's thank you Christ for that. The second thing, the second major segment in chapter 1 is, uh, we talked about this, almost a, a poem or a hymn, basically exalting Christ's preeminence. And we, we talked about that um, together over a couple of weeks, but we talked specifically that Christ was preeminent in eternity, that He has existed before all things, and that He is not a created being in the sense that He started existing when God created the heavens and the earth. That in fact, we said He's preeminent in creation because He created all things. So He existed before all things and He was the cause of all creation. We talked about Him being preeminent in the church. Again, that Jesus Christ is the one who is to be exalted in the church. And that's that it's because He is the head of the church. It is His body. It is all about Jesus Christ. And then we talked about that in reconciliation. That Jesus is... Uh, preeminent in reconciliation. And I'm sorry, I didn't put those on the screen. So I can review that. Eternity in creation, in the church, and in reconciliation. Christ is preeminent in all of those things. And then we apply that specifically to the life of the Christian in verses 21 through 23, where Christ's preeminence applied to the life of believers. That is our salvation. That He is first and foremost the One who caused us to be saved. We are saved because of His work. We are saved because of His death. 
We are saved because of, on behalf of, Christ. And that our goal as believers is to be established in Him. So again, it's all about Christ. And then Paul talked about uh, at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, really Paul's ministry as an ambassador for Christ, as a part of the work of Christ in the church. And he is talking to the believers and saying, this is what I do, not for myself, but because of what Christ has done, that I may continue to speak the things that would be pleasing to Him. And then last week, I believe you all talked about uh, the exhortation to walk in Christ and how important it is for us to walk in Him. In fact, I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 because it really flows into what we're going to talk about in verse 8. It says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And so again, he says you are to walk in Him. You are to be established in Him, built up in Him, established in your faith in Him. It is all about a walk with Christ. And so the, the all-sufficiency of Christ has been already shown throughout the chapter or throughout the book, but really as we turn the page into chapter 2, verse 8 and beyond, we start seeing Paul directly addressing some of the issues that were causing problems in the church in Colossae, and honestly addressing some of the issues that's a problem in the church today. And so the, the, the danger of Christless philosophy, which is our, our, ta- our title for today, is really what Paul was exhorting the Colossians on. That you cannot pursue philosophy, and we'll talk about what that means, apart from pursuit of Christ. That pursuing Christless philosophy is dangerous and not good. One of the, the commentators I read, F.F. F. Bruce, Uh, had a good way of kind of summarizing and transitioning into what we're doing today. It says, Bruce said, against the implied attack of the biblical doctrine of creation, Paul has already insisted that the universe was brought into being through the solitary agency of Christ. Against the enticing claim that a higher wisdom was offered by the new teaching, he has emphasized that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are stored up in Christ. Against the doctrine of an indefinite series of intermediary powers through which the divine essence was distributed until it reached man, he sets Christ as the personal embodiment of the fullness of deity. He goes on to say, the whole body of teaching which the Colossians were being urged to accept was a refurbishing in its Jewish and pagan features alike, because again, some came from a Jewish background, some came from a pagan background, of old patterns of thought which Christ has rendered obsolete. It should receive no countenance for those who have died with Christ and risen with Him to newness of life. 
And so really what Paul is teaching the Colossians is whatever your background was, whether you came from a Jewish background, whether you came from a pagan background, whether you came from a mixture of the two, you need to put away those things and pursue Christ and Christ alone. That is the goal. And so we're going to talk about that. And first, Paul is going to give us a, a, a couple of warnings, and then we're going to talk about where we go from here. So I'm teaching the next couple of weeks. I'm not getting through all of this today. Um, that's just the reality of, of how much content there is. But the outline for the upcoming few weeks is first we have the danger of Christless philosophy. That's today. Then we have the all-sufficiency of Christ in verses 9 through 15. And then in verses 16 through 23, we're going to look at the danger of Christless legalism. And really, our goal is, as we go through these things, is to help understand how we have to, as believers, put Christ first in everything. That we have to reject all other worldviews, all other philosophies, all other practices even that are not focused on Christ and pursue Him as the all-sufficient for us. So, as we read through this, I want to read through the section, um, at least some of the section. We won't read probably the whole, whole passage I just went through, but I want to read it through just so you're going to get a flow we read verses 6 and 7. It says, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I'm going to stop there. And again, there's so much information there. Um, but I want you to see that what Paul is doing is setting against, in verse 8, what the world has taught, what most of the Colossian believers have grown up learning and understanding and making decisions by and living their lives through. He says that is not what Christians do. What they do is they pursue Christ, and this is why, because all the fullness of deity dwells in Him. And in Him you have this, and in Him you have this, and in Him you have this. And so we're going to go through that, but we have to set the stage because the reality is all of us came from a Christless background. Not one of us was born a Christian. 
Now, some of you, by God's grace, were raised in a Christian household. You may have heard the Bible taught in your homes or at a church weekly, regularly throughout your lives, but there was still a point in you that you did not believe the gospel. You believed you had some power on your own. You believed you could do enough good things to accomplish what you wanted. And God had to change you. Now, some of you were adults. You were older. And you may have come to, come to the Lord out of a, a dark background. Either way, the reality is, is we have to put away those things that are behind us and learn to pursue Christ and Christ alone. So we see Paul is, I said this is the danger of a Christless philosophy. Paul gets us going with a warning right away. See to it. Okay, the the word in other translations is beware. The idea is this is a warning. He's talking to these believers. Again, he doesn't know them personally but he loves them he cares about them that's what he already just talked about in the last section how he's ministering on behalf of christ to those whom god has given him as those to minister to and he loves them and he's saying beware watch out see to it be aware what's going on This is a pastoral warning. This is the shepherd chasing off the wolves and strengthening the sheep and gathering them back in. This is what Paul is doing. You know, there's many dangers that come to the church from outside the church. And there's many dangers that come to the church from inside the church. And what Paul is is working here is both sides of this. But he's giving us a biblical warning to be aware or beware of false teaching in the church. Beware of false teaching in your minds and in your hearts. In this passage, Paul warns the Colossians of those within the church that are preying upon the Colossians with the idea that they can combine biblical teaching and ancient wisdom and make some really, really great philosophy. And that's what was happening. There have been and there always will be those who teach Christ plus something is the way to real righteousness. And in this letter, Paul is is already working against that. He's already started pointing the finger to Christ and Christ alone as the one who is worth following. Paul's picking up the, the mantle that Jesus gave him. Because Jesus gave many warnings in Scriptures about false teachers, about those who look good on the outside, who are inside the synagogue or inside the church, and yet they are not what God wants. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, the challenge there is we think they look good, right? They look like sheep. They look like they belong. It's only on the inside. And then that comes out over time. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven 
of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there again, he's speaking specifically about that idea of I'm going to take what the Bible teaches, I'm going to sprinkle in some extra stuff and mix it all together and it'll make things better. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. They wanted to add to the Scriptures. They wanted to, to, to add extra commands and extra rules and extra things that would make them more righteous. But we know the outcome of that was they lost sight of the actual Christ, the Messiah that God had promised. They missed Him completely when He was literally staring at them in the face because they were so committed to their own teaching, their own knowledge. The apostles as well teach or give warnings. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul uses some pretty strong words. <laughs> he says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Okay? Paul didn't beat around the bush too much, which is helpful for us because sometimes we can uh, be nice maybe and, and miss things. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And really there, Peter is, is pointing out this is why it's so important is that if you start falling into getting carried away, as he uses, these false teachers, these false teachings, they will remove and erode your steadfastness in Christ. That our goal is to be steadfast, foundationally planted in Christ and Christ alone. And we have to be on our guard that we don't get pulled away to something else, someone else, that would keep us from focusing on Christ. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. Again, there's going to be those that are going to come in and say, I know that's what it says, but let me tell you something else. No. It has to be what is in God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And uh, I mean, that's just a warning, right? That those that get led astray, those that get deceived by empty words, words that even sound good, but are not in the Bible, are not true biblical teaching, there's a chance for those to be judged. We don't want that. I hope you don't want that. Right? The, the, the word, as he, as he goes on, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And this is a, a really fun word. Takes you captive. It's a rare word. In fact, this, this word specifically does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And it probably means to be carried off as booty or as a captive rather than rob or despoil. It's kind of a common teaching that this means like someone's going to steal something from you and, and, and rob you of something. But what the, the, the commentators and the, the, the 
language people that are a lot smarter than I am that I studied, they were all pretty much universal in saying, no, it's not about you getting something taken away from you. It's about you getting taken away. You getting removed from, taken captive from following Christ alone. And so it's figuratively, accordingly the word is used figuratively, of carrying off someone away from the truth and into the slavery of error. And so that's why we have to be on guard. We need to be careful, not so we don't lose stuff. We need to be careful so that we don't get lost. So that we don't get pulled away from the truth that's found in Scripture. Again, I said this is the only time that this specific word is in the Bible, but there are several examples of the same idea um, in the, the Scriptures. Second uh, Peter already used that one, right? Be, be on your guard that you are not carried away by this error. So again, for us in the English, we go, yeah, it's the same word. It's, it's different in Greek. Again, I don't study Greek very much, but it's good to know that uh, that's a unique thing. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good to the, or for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. And there again, it's talking specifically about people that say, oh, if you want to really follow Christ, you've got to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Right? You've got to eat this stuff and not that stuff. You've got to do this thing and not that thing. If you, if you really want to follow Christ, do these things. And Paul, or the, the writer of Hebrews says, don't, don't be carried away by that. He even says, I love this, that those things that they're so occupied with, they will not be benefited from. It does not provide benefit. And they are consumed with it. They're occupied with it. This was not just a problem in the, the New Testament. Obviously, this is a problem the Jews struggled with mightily over the years, getting carried away, taken captive by other philosophies, other teachings, other religions. And just one of many examples I could have gone to, Jeremiah 29.8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream. And again, the reason for that is because those dreams were not coming from the Lord. Right? There, there's so many times that the nation was carried away by someone saying, I'm speaking for God. And their message was not from God. They were carried away. They were deceived. And God <laughs> was warning the nation just like Paul is warning the church today. Don't let that happen. And, and later on in chapter 2, uh, again, we'll get back to this in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. It says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. I mean, I love this picture. They're defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And, and again, this is a picture of this false teaching this false religion that was being taught in the Colossian church and he's saying don't don't fall for it guys don't do that so Paul has given us this this warning beware be on your guard watch out for this 
you have to make sure you're not carried off by some other philosophy. And so we need to talk about what is philosophy, right? It's a big word. And it was kind of funny, like when I first started saying, okay, I'm going to be talking about philosophy. And in my own mind, I tried to define it. And then I looked up, you know, several definitions of it. And I was like, oh, I missed a lot of things. I didn't, I didn't go anywhere near as deep and thoughtful as, as what I, I probably should have. But we, we wanted to know that, that Paul warns about this philosophy and empty deception. He's coupling those two things together. It's not that Paul was opposed to philosophy. It's that he's, he's warning about the type of philosophy that is not founded in Christ and His Word. So literally, philosophy means literally the love of wisdom. So again, that's a great thing. If you love God's wisdom, you are a philosopher. Okay, that is wonderful, and we should all do that. But obviously, that's not what most people think of when they think of philosophy. So uh, this is a definition actually from a a university course on Philosophy 101. Okay, it says, in a broad sense, philosophy is an activity people undertake when they seek to understand fundamental truths about themselves the world in which they live, and their relationships to the world and to each other. Okay, so that's what Philosophy 101 is going to teach you. Now, spoiler alert, there's a big, big part of philosophy they're missing, right? What is it? Yeah, there's nothing about God, right? There's really nothing about uh, uh, morality, There's nothing about ethics. There's just simply like it's interpersonal relationships and how I think about things. But it's missing the point. Practically, again, this is my way, way dumbed down version of of the answer, right? It's the study of man's worldview and therefore it can be God-centered or man-centered, right? And that's the thing is philosophy is not a bad thing to pursue, to study, to engage with. The question is, are you pursuing it from a God-centered perspective? Are you pursuing it from a man-centered perspective? Now, I think you know, shouldn't be too surprising, that when the Bible talks about philosophy that is man-centered, it always talks about it as a negative thing. (laughs) Okay? The, The reality is, is when you try to cut God out of any teaching... I mean, Milt, you've been a teacher in schools for a long time, right? You've probably seen the, the, the gen- degeneration of the, the, the school culture, and it certainly was there before. I'm not saying there wasn't bad kids before, but you take away the Ten Commandments, you take away prayer in schools, you take away any teacher being able to talk about things, and you are left with this godless philosophy that has no answers for neither the teachers nor the students. When Paul and the Bible talks about philosophy apart from God, it is never, ever a good thing. So I've got several verses there. We may not be able to read through all of these, but I wanted to to leave those in your notes just so you had it because I think it is helpful for you to... um, to study this on your own because this is a big issue guys i gotta tell you like the more i got into it i kept thinking i was going to get eight through ten in one lesson and i was like 
I can't do it. Like there's just too much here. And it sets the foundation. It sets the floor for what Paul's going to talk about really for the rest of the book. So we have to understand this. So even if we don't get enough time to go through all of this together, I pray that you'd go back and look at these things because I think it'll be helpful for you. Again, later on in Colossians, we're going to get to this, but I, I just love this phrase. Verse, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. There are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. In self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And really what he's talking about, we'll get there in a couple of weeks again, Lord willing, but he's talking about you know this legalism, this rule setting, this thing that says I'm going to do this, and if I do these things, then God will make me righteous, will make me holy. It does not actually work. It doesn't do it. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Again, we could just have read like all of Romans chapter 1, but we've got to cut it down, right? It says, for even though they, he's talking about unbelievers, naturally knew God. They understand that God exists. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in, or futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And that's where now with anybody that says, I majored in philosophy in college, or I'm a philosophy teacher, or I study philosophy, you can almost guarantee that they have professed to be wise, but they have become fools. Because the most philosophy nowadays is taught from the man-centered viewpoint, from the focus on self in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is, is talking about philosophy and he says, it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will, clever I will set aside. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. And again, there's, there's a lot of unpacking we could do there on just verse 21. But the reality is, is that this is part of God's plan. God allows philosophy. He allows men to think that they're smarter than Him. He allows them to think that they've, they've got it all figured out, that they have the answers to life questions. And He chooses to let them walk down that path to their own condemnation. And yet, by His goodness, He takes a message that most people would say is foolish, silly, pointless in the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and He makes that the power for salvation. He says, I'll, I'll let you have all that wisdom you want. It'll get you nowhere. You have to believe the foolish message of the Gospel in order to be saved. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul continues, he says, Let no man deceive himself, for if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Guys, 
we need to understand, and I'm pointing this to you to try to help us all remember that the Christless philosophy of this age, of this world, will never, ever compare to Christ. It is nothing compared to Christ. It is foolishness. Again, we won't get to go through all of these quotes or all these passages, but I, I want to share those with you. I love this illustration. Uh, uh, I, I've gotten to where I really enjoy uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He's an old Presbyterian preacher. He, he preached in, in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia at 10th Street Church for years and years and years. Uh, but he was a little bit of a wit, uh, maybe a punk, uh, as you might call it, as a teenager. And he tells this story. He says he, he used to pull this practical jokes where he and his teenage friends would get on the middle of a street corner right in Philadelphia, okay, and they would stare up in the sky and they would start play acting this thing. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, no, yeah, yeah, look, look. And they would just see how many people would come and start looking up. And after a while, they, they, would, they would see like all these people looking up and they're trying to you know, figure out what is it. And they, the friends would all just kind of slip back and just sit there and mock them, right? Laugh at the people that are, they're starting, yeah, I see, I see, I know, I don't know, you know. And they would do that, convincing people to stop and look at nothing. This is what he said. He says, that little incident is a good illustration of all the earth-born religions. People talk about having faith. They tell you to look in a direction where there is absolutely nothing. Some people are so desperately in need of something that they will look till they're almost blind. Yet they never catch a glimpse of anything real. That is Christless philosophy. They're sitting here saying, I figured it out. I have the answer. And it will never, ever get them to what is real. Now, Paul gives us a couple of reasons why this philosophy has failed and is going to, or is flawed and is going to fail no matter what. And he says that the reason is that this philosophy, first of all, according to the tradition of men. Okay, that, that it fails because it's based on the tradition of men. Again, Colossians chapter 2, we'll get back to this verse again, Lord willing. It says that, that these people are following these teachings which are destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. He's, he's saying, why are we doing this? Colossians, he's warning them. He's pleading with them. Don't allow yourself to get drawn away and believe the teachings of men. In Matthew chapter 15, we have this interchange between the, the, the Pharisees and Jesus. And they ask Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Wow. I, honestly, I, I'm sure I've read that passage, you know, 
honestly, probably 50, 100 times in my life. And I don't think I'd ever caught that. That Jesus just cut through all of the veneer of the Pharisees and said, you choose to disobey the commandment of God because you want to uphold your tradition. Whew. May we not be like that. All right, he gives an example. It says, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Well, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Again, the Pharisees thought they were righteous. They thought they were doing something good. I'm giving money to God. What better thing could I do with my money than that? And God says, well, I've actually told you. <laughs> you can take care of your family. You can show honor to your parents. If they have a need, you can help take care of them. Right? I think Jesus quotes the, the passage in Isaiah. It says, rightly, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Uh, the Mark chapter 7 is, is basically the same interchange. It's just Mark's perspective on it. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I just love where he lands on that one. It says, you're neglecting the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. We cannot do that. We cannot allow that in our own lives. We have to be constantly on guard that we do not take what is a tradition and exalt it above what God has revealed in His Word. We cannot allow ourselves to do that. But secondly, Paul says that, that, that this is philosophy that is according to the elementary principles of the world. And again, there's some debate on what this means. Some, some say this is talking about um, like the elements, like earth, wind, fire, water, you know, that kind of thing. Some are saying it's no, it's the elementary principles is another term for like angels and demons in the spiritual realm, right? And some are saying, well, it could mean both, right? So I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to land on that. But he's saying for sure that we need to be careful not to pursue those things that are elementary principles of the world. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, again, I'm going to have lots of fun getting there when we get there. But it says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to such decrees, or to decrees such as, and he goes on to this long list of man-made rules, man-made religion that has no value. But these are the elementary principles of the world we have died, it says, to those elementary principles. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. 
Verses 8 and 9, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless, excuse me, weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? We, we are not to be trapped by those things, those elemental things that we have died to. We are to continue to pursue Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, again, one of our, our favorite passages. We refer this a lot because it's so packed with truth. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says, you, were former, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And again, that's a, a verse that would kind of maybe point to the spiritual realm, the spiritual aspect. You were under, uh, it already said this in Colossians, right? You were under the domain of darkness and you have been moved into the domain of His great, glorious light. Don't go back into the darkness. Don't be captivated by those things that you came out of. Focus on Christ. says rather than according to Christ and again this is where Paul's going to pivot and he's going to start focusing on Christ specifically he says that if we're focusing on anything other than Christ we stand at risk of being captivated of being taken captive of being carried away from the truth those things empty philosophy the traditions of men the elementary principles of the world they are nothing compared to Christ. They are nothing. Now, as I studied through this, one thing that, that stuck out to me is how easy it is for me to do this, to be honest. How easy it is to be captivated by things. And I, I, I put this in for myself, but maybe this will be helpful. <laughs> no one should take us captive, including ourselves. Okay, including ourselves, we do not need to be taking ourselves captive. And I want to read a, a passage with you and, and make a couple of points that were helpful for me even as I considered um, this lesson. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, this is Isaiah speaking, and he's speaking about God, or speaking about what God has done. It says, For you, God, have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. And they are, they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasure. Their land has been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands that which their fingers have made. And you may say, well, I don't do that. I don't worship idols. I, I'm not concerned about those things. I want to read a passage from a different version of the Bible. And this is one I don't refer to a lot, but I thought it was helpful. The message says it this way. 
God, you have walked out on your family, Jacob, because their world is full of hokey religion, Philistine witchcraft and pagan hocus pocus, a world rolling in wealth, stuffed with things, no end to its machines and gadgets, and gods, gods of all sorts and sizes, these people make their own gods and worship what they have made. Now, I think he got to the heart of the passage, right? I mean, again, Eugene Peterson, I'm not a big fan of everything he did in the message, but I thought this was really well done. And this is what one of the commentators said about this paraphrase. He says, Peterson's paraphrase reminds the modern reader that the concept of idolatry is immediately relevant. While few of us would bow before a statue, Many of us place our trust and hope in things other than God. This emphasis, idols as anything in which we put our trust instead of God, explains why Isaiah 2, 6-8 and Micah 5, 10-15 condemn horses and chariots along with idols. They both, they both represent areas of Israel's unbelief in God and their trust in other possessions many of us hunger for more things success security and position than we do for god for the readers of isaiah's text idols represent an alternative security to believe in or to belief in god are our modern gods any different I, I, again, this was helpful for me to, to think how easy is it for me to put my comfort, my confidence, my security in things other than God. As we finish, I don't have time for the C.S. Lewis quote, which is a sad thing because C.S. Lewis is always good. But by way of application, I <laughs> Beware of being taken captive. Right? Beware of empty philosophy. Maybe it's some teaching that you grew up in. Something you, you got so comfortable thinking that this is the way it is that you can't unthink it. Or you're, you're not doing it consistently. This is it. This is God's Word. What we do matters that we te- treat our lives as coming from this book not from some other area, some other place. Do not let the traditions of men or the elemental principles of this world captivate us. Do not be captivated by the idols of this life. And secondly, and this is where we're going to go with the rest of the passage, be, I put be or become, become captivated with Christ. That's what Paul is calling us to do, is to say, don't get carried away by this, but if you're going to get carried away by anything, be carried away by Jesus Christ and what He has done and who He is. May we do that this week. Be captivated by Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, it is, it is so rich. There is so much there and so much that our hearts, my heart, needs to hear. 
And Lord, I, I, I thank you that you gave me the time to study this passage. I thank you that you, you challenged me with this truth. And Lord, I pray that this was a, a helpful time for those that are here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be captivated by anything but you. Lord, might we seek you for all things. Lord, you are all sufficient. Sufficient for every issue of our lives. Lord, may we not be drawn away by anything else, especially empty, Christless philosophy. The traditions of men, the elemental teachings of this world that we have already died to, Lord. Help us to live and walk in You. And Lord, I pray as we study that this passage next week that we might already prepare our hearts that we would be pursuing you this week above all else, that we might grow in our knowledge and our understanding and our wisdom of how to apply your word in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.